Merci. Good evening, everybody. My name's John Watson. I'm the Scottish Programme Director for Amnesty International. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and in particular to tonight's Amnesty Lecture, the Amnesty event, uh, with our guest speaker tonight, Emmanuel Jao. Uh, I want to start just by thanking the Book Festival for the time that is given over to discussions around freedom of expression during the festival. If any of you have seen the programme, you'll know that what we have here is 16 days of unbridled freedom of expression, a real feast of it. But what I think is particularly impressive is that during that very packed schedule, there's a bit of time taken aside every day for the Imprisoned Writers event, a chance to actually go beyond just enjoying freedom of expression and actually talk about the importance of that right, talk about other parts of the world where it's not so easy to sit together and talk about ideas the way that we're going to do tonight, and to actually take some time to act on behalf of other people around the world who don't enjoy that right the same way. So it's great, I think, that the Edinburgh Book Festival see it as part of their ethos to actually talk about the importance of freedom of expression and to do something about it rather than to just indulge in it. Tonight, uh, we have the, the Amnesty Lecture, uh, now a, a regular part of the Book Festival. I'm particularly pleased that uh, Emmanuel Jal has agreed to, to do the Amnesty event this evening. I think a particularly pertinent author. Partly, I think, because as Amnesty International, uh, when, when you talk about Amnesty, when you talk as Amnesty, people very often immediately have ideas of death and suffering and bad things happening around the world. I think partly because that's what we spend a lot of our time talking about, and it's very important that we do. But simply to focus on that side of things misses a very important other angle to the work that we do, and the fact that as a human rights organization, we're setting ourselves out as optimists and people who have a positive view of the world. And I think that's not always the impression you get of us. Because as a human rights organization, we're setting out our stall and saying that we believe every human being in the world is important. Every human being should be treated with dignity and respect. And that by our actions, we can actually bring about a better world where those rights are respected and that vision is actually brought to, to completion. And similarly, I think, for our guest speaker this evening, some of the easier media headlines will talk about him in terms of a terrible past, being a child soldier, uh, the deprivation that's involved, the loss of family, the loss of innocence. And all of that is important. But there's such an important other side, I think, to our speaker tonight that I would really uh, be disappointed if that was missed out. And that is about hope. It's about actually moving on from terrible things. It's about the journey from hatred towards reconciliation. And I think it's a wonderful message to talk about human rights and a very pertinent uh, speaker for the Amnesty Lecture. So without taking up any more of the time, without telling any more of the story, I'm delighted to be able to pass you on to Emmanuel Jal. Thank you for introducing me. So I don't know, should I talk sitting or, or standing? I mean, I, I think I'll just stand. <laughs> yeah. Well, are this one working too? Yes, I just want to say good evening to everybody here. Can I say good evening? Yeah, yeah I want to say thank you to the book festival to give me this opportunity to come and, and speak here. And I also want to say thank you to Amnesty for coming together with the Edinburgh Book Festival to give me this chance. A lot of you, I don't know now what is going on in your mind when you're looking at me like this. I, I'm, I'm a bit slow. It's like I was smoking weed or something. But. Uh, I've not been smoking weed. I've been in a journey whereby uh, it's a, a campaign called Lose to Win. And it has given me a certain effect as if I've been taking drugs. You know, I've been fasting. Today's day 255. I put myself on a mission. I say, until I accomplish it, I'm not going to eat my breakfast, my lunch, until it's done. Well, let me just go on. Now, I'll just talk about 
my story in a short form, then I'm gonna perform a bit, then after that, and then I'll leave the rest to him so that he could ask me some few questions. It's hard for me sometimes to just travel the world and tell people about my story, but I do it for few reasons. And one of them is I'm doing it for a young man in my village now who's in this, who has been in the same situation like me or who has nowhere to actually project his voice and tell his story or how he can demand for change to happen. And also I'm doing it for, for those that have, have not got a chance like this to come and tell their stories. So many children out there, I'm just representing them now. So this is how my story goes. I was born in, in Tony, in South Sudan. And during that time, my, my country was at war. So my father was a policeman and my mother was a nurse. But it didn't take long, you know. SPLA was formed in South Sudan. There was tension between the North and the South. And after a while, everything that meant a lot to us, everything that was ours, we lost everything. And me losing my brothers and sisters, losing my mom, and also getting detached with, with my father. During that time, those at uh, SPLA decided to take children to school in Ethiopia. And so I was among the kids that were taken to school in Ethiopia. And when I got into Ethiopia, we actually went to school for a while. Then after a while, we were given an opportunity to be trained. So when we went to a training center, I did not really know what was the war all about. But one thing I went for in the training is I wanted to revenge for my family. I wanted to revenge for my brothers and sisters. I wanted to revenge for my village. And one image that kept me going, there's a feeling, a seed that was planted in my heart when I was a kid, and it was when, uh, when a lorry with, uh, with my mom, my uncle, and my brothers and sisters. And then one government soldier from, from the north decided to take our food. And I told my mom that our food has been taken. So when we tried to get our food from him, he started cussing and saying, uh, these are abids, no, non-believers, and it's God's will for them to be slaves. And they're form a movement and they'll never win because God is on our side. And so the man started talking badly but my mom told my uncle not to retaliate to him. So when we tried to get our food from him, then he started beating my uncle and then beating my mom. When he beat my mom, then I, I tried to go and stop what was happening. So the guy held me on my neck, then I fainted. And uh, all over me was blood. So later on, when I came back to life, that seed was planted in me, and I said, of to hate a different kind of people that I can describe the image, you know, they tie stuff on their head, you know. In short, it was like I was hating on Muslims and, and Arabs. And so when I was in a training, I said, I want to kill as many Muslims and as many Arabs as possible. And that was the driving force to, to make me complete the training. The training wasn't an easy one, because a lot of kids died in the training as well. And I, I'm just going to cut this part ch uh, short and, and uh, go ahead a bit, because I want to give part for, for question. I want to explain uh, a small piece of my, of my journey. And before I explain it, I just want to give a, a summary of my story in, short, in a form of a poem 
then I can go on into the, that, that journey. Are you guys okay with that? Okay, I mean. Okay, it's good. So I have to put one off. This poem, uh, it's called Forced to Sin, to make a living. It's a summary about my story in like three minutes. I normally do it for people who normally sleep in the session. <laughs> and so I don't want some of you I can see some about sleep so they won't go out with nothing. So this is how it goes. My dreams are like torment. My heavy moment. Voices in my brain of friends that were slain. Friends like Loal who died by my side of starvation. In the burning jungle and the desert plain. Next was I, but Jesus heard my cry. As I was tempted to eat the rotten flesh of my comrade, he gave me comfort. We used to raid villages, stealing chickens, goats, and sheep. Anything we could eat. I knew it was rude, but we needed food. And therefore I was forced to sin. Forced to sin to make a living. Forced to sin to make a living. Sometimes you gotta lose to win. Never give up. Never give in. Left home at the age of seven. One year later, I live with an AK-47. By my side, slept with one eye open wide. Run dark, play dead and hide. I've seen my people die like flies. But I've never seen a dead enemy or at least one that I've killed. But still as a wonder, I won't go under. Guns barking like lightning and thunder. As a child so young and tender. Words I can't forget, I still remember. As the sergeant command, raising his hand, no retreat, no surrender. Yigish, I carry the burn of the trauma. War child, child without a mama. Still fighting in the saga. Yet as I wait this near war, I'm not alone in this drama. No sit I stop, as I reach for the top. I'm fully dedicated like a patriotic cop. I'm on a fight. Day and night, sometimes I'm doing wrong in order to make things right. It's like I'm living a dream, first time I'm feeling like a human being, uh. The children of Darfur, your empty bellies on the telly, now it's you that I'm fighting for. Left home, don't even know the day I'll ever return. My country's war-torn. Music I used to hear was bombs and fire of guns. So many people died that I don't even cry no more. Ask God, question, what am I here for? And why are my people poor? Why and why? When the rest of the children were learning how to read and write, I was learning how to fight. I ate snails, vultures, rats, snakes, and anything that had life. I was ready to eat. I know it's a shame, but who is to be blamed? That's my story in short. Blessing. I'm just uh, now. I'm gonna focus on on my journey, which is the lowest point in my life. That whenever I think about it now, it gave me strength, and it's it's one of the lowest form, you know, and I'm going on it now. It was one one morning, so a friend of mine just tapped my back, you know, when a place called Juba. This is the last battlefield that I left. And he told me, Emmanuel, wake up. And I, and I asked him what's happening. He just told me, wake up, let's go. And so I thought it's the normal morning whereby we take ammunition, maize, and take them to the battlefield, to the soldiers, or maybe go and get the wounded 
into a place where they can be treated. And so I didn't carry a bag or anything. So we went to the store, we carried maize and uh, some ammunition. And then we crossed the river. Then as we crossed the river, like on the other side, and I asked him again, what is really happening? He told me, Iman, actually we are escaping. And I said, how come you have not told me? Tell me we have been planning it for three months. And if we told you, because you have a big mouth, <laughs> you'll tell everybody, and we'll all be in trouble. Which is true, so I understood what he was saying, because then I never used to keep secret. You know, if you tell me something, I'm going to tell it immediately. But you can't trust me now, you want to tell me. <laughs> and so, on that journey, we were... We had enough food and everything. So the journey was supposed to take us one month, but it took us three months. The first one month we had enough food, but we're moving very slow because of the minefields. And also, we're avoiding the, the helicopters, gunship that normally come at a low level in the trees, and they normally uh, disturb us a lot. And also, we're also trying to avoid ambush from either the government side or maybe from SPLA that we have escaped from. So the first one month, we had enough food. And as the month ended, the food we had got finished. And so I used to hide some maize in my pocket. So I started eating maize dry. Then I'll just drink water. And then after a while, we're calling, we're told, we should apply our basic soldier skills, eat anything, nothing is poisonous. And so we started eating all kind of vegetation. Uh, some got poisoned, you know, and luckily I didn't get poisoned when I started eating the leaves of the trees. And then off that journey, we arrived in another place where we were warned, we were told, this place it's going to be dry for a while, so we should carry enough water. And if you finish your water, then you're done. You're not going to survive this journey. And so everybody took enough water. So we move like early in the morning, like around 2, 2 p.m. Even the commander who told us to be taking a sip of the water, not to finish our water, finishes water. The temperatures were like 44 degrees Celsius, so everybody finished their water. And now there was no any water close. But we kept on moving in the journey. Like evening arrived, there was no water, so everybody was thirsty. There was nowhere we can't cook, we can't do anything. So, But around like 4 a.m., you know, when I was trying to sleep, I was able to feel some water on top of the grass. You know, it's called dew. So I would wipe my hand on the grass and, and then lick it several times. So I told my friends, that's the only way we are going to get water. So everybody started doing that. So we put our hand on, the, on top of the grass. You do it hundreds, many times. And that was the water for the day. Then we woke up the next day. So we move on. That water wasn't even enough because it was really hot and we were getting dehydrated. And as time went by, you know, we are told to be brother skipper. But one thing I learned about human being when you're pushed to the world to your highest pressure, you, you begin to act not normally. You become weird. Here, you see a fellow soldier. Early on, everybody was drinking their own urine. But now, other soldiers will just take their gun and put it on their fellow soldiers and tell them, fill this cup with urine. And so you try to squeeze as much urine as you can, then they try to drink it, then it doesn't help them. So they get irritated and they just shoot themselves. In that journey, what I realized when you're thirsty, your eyes become blur. And when you're talking, uh, your saliva become thick and then after a while no more saliva then when you talk and your mouth just move you can't hear what your next uh, 
when you're, what your friend is saying, and also your senses, your feelings, your body become restless, dying of uh, when you're getting thirsty. Then we moved on. I got tempted several times like to shoot myself, but I said, no, let me die naturally. So we moved on until we arrived under a tree. Under this tree, we had a magician, and he told us he's going to bring us water. And so he started doing his magic to try to bring us rain. So we waited for a while. There was no rain coming. And so uh, everybody started praying to different gods for water to come. But in my, in my journey, my mother's been an inspiration. So whenever anything happened, I always pray to our God. And so under that tree, I started praying to my mom's God. And I said, God, give us water. And so after a while, like after five minutes, uh, a, a small cloud appeared. And 100 meters away from the tree that we're on, there was no, like, this, there's no sign of water. So it started raining only under that tree that we're in. And everybody was so happy, so we collected water and we started drinking. But none of us gave thanks, so we started having a problem. Whose God brought the water? So the magician said he brought the water. Another friend of mine said it was his mother's God, which they worship a snake in their village, so he said it's the snake that brought the water. So there was so much. Uh, everybody wanted to praise their God, but we all disagreed, so we left it, and everybody has to thank their God in their own way. So we moved under the tree, and we kept on going with our journey. Then we arrived in a swampy area. In the swampy area, because we're all running out of energy, nobody, everybody now was skinny. We have gone like a couple of days. There was no food. So here in this, the water, I think, was reaching me up to here. But the problem is when you fall down, nobody will pick you. You just drown in the water. So you just see the bubbles coming out. But what I did was I was able to see snails floating, and then I'll collect them, put them in my pocket, and I collected a lot of snails. And when we arrived in a place which was elevated a bit, I started uh, taking the gunpowder from the shell of the bullet, and then light up a fire, and I was able to roast some snails, and I started eating them. Others were laughing at me and telling me, why are you eating snails? not normal. And then I told them, we are, I'm applying my basic soldier skills. And everybody started joining, so they started eating snails with me. And uh, that became our food. Some adults died with their pride, so they didn't want to eat anything. So we camped there, so vultures come to, tr to eat the dead bodies. The, uh, the bodies that were there. So we shoot them, and then we eat the vultures, snakes, frogs, any, any living thing that come next to us, we're able to eat them. But after a while, what happened? All these animals decided to keep off. So they realized we're eating them. So they started keeping off. They don't even come close when there's a dead body. And it became more tense. For me, what my experience were, something changed. My senses changed. I sit next to somebody. They smell like food. They smell like dried meat. I feel like I want to eat them. And early on, we, the magician that was with us started uh, roasting the dead body. So he would slash them and dry them, and then he would roast, and then for us, you could see him from the distance, but the smell can travel until where you are, so you feel like you want to eat your fellow human being. So one of my friends died. We tied bombs around him, and then we put him in the, a tree, hoping that when the hyenas come, 
the bombs would explode and then we we're going to eat that aina. But I didn't understand the speed at which the ainas come and take the body and the, the bombs explode. So the ainas came and took the body, the bomb exploded, and we, we couldn't catch any aina. So that morning I went out of the tree to see if there's any pieces of a dead body that I could eat. Then I look around. There was none. It was only flying. I wanted to eat that nobody was able to see me, but unfortunately I couldn't find any peace. And so I came back under the tree that I was in. I was sleeping next to my friend called Luol that I, fe I featured him in the, the, the poetry that I was telling you early on. And he was dying, very weak. Then I look at him in his eyes and I say, look, I'm going to eat you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded like a bomb. <laughs> Die. Is that Tanda or? Huh? Uh, okay. Wow. <laughs> I didn't expect that. So, so I look at his eyes, and I said, I'm going to eat you tomorrow. I didn't know what he was thinking, if he could hear what I was telling him. And then I waited that night, so I was holding his hand. But in my mind, there were so many things going on. Some, I would hear some part of my mind telling me, no, you cannot eat. It's a sin. You can't eat a dead. You can't eat your fellow human being. Then another part of my mind tell me this is the only way to survive. Then another part of my mind tell me how are you going to live when you survive when there are people. And then my other part of the mind tells me it's okay. Nobody will know. Then the other part, all almost throughout the night, my mind was just arguing with itself. And then. All of a sudden, I started thinking about my mom. And I said, God, if you are there, give me something to eat. That someday, if I survive, I'm going to testify about this moment. And so I waited, and I gave God a couple of hours to prove if he exists. And if he doesn't, and I'll eat this friend of mine, and I'll never believe in him. And so I waited one hour, two hours. Nothing was happening. 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m. Then like around 11 a.m. when I was just about to lose hope and started eating my friend, a bird came very close. And I think maybe God made that bird lose his mind. Because if I was to slap it, I'd just grab it. So a friend of mine shot the bird. But he later died because he never had any energy left on him. And so I ate the whole bird. I ate the intestine, the nails. I couldn't remember any piece that I threw away. And that was the bird that uh, made me survive that moment. Then after a while, more birds come, more snails started popping, and then people came to rescue us. You know, and when the people came to rescue us, we had another problem. So now they kill animals. And uh, those who survive, also we lost a couple of people when they brought the actual food. But me, I, I was, most of the time they tie me down. And I would really feel bad why they tying me down. Because you, you you're just eating. You know, when you find food and you've been hungry for a long time, you just eat and your belly just swells and you don't feel it and then you just lose it. But I thank those people who tied me down, because I would have been gone now. And so I arrived in a place called Word, where we're taken. This is the place I met Emma, a British aid worker. Uh, and, she, and my gun like, was longer than me. And she was with a friend of, uh, from America called Kristen Colbert. So they started arguing on how they want to take me to school. So this one say, I'm going to take him to the school. The other one say, I'm going to take him to the school. 
Then, because I knew a bit of English, so I told him, whoever win, after he finished fighting, will take me to school. <laughs> and so from there, they paid more attention. Oh, you speak English. And I told him a little bit. No, I won't say a little bit. I can't remember the exact word, but I told him something small. And so I was disarmed. And then Emma told me she's going to take me to school. But in, in my heart, I'm saying, okay, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go to this white woman land to go to school, go learn how to fly a plane. I'll go and join the army, then go and steal the plane and come back to war. So my ideas of me going to school was to go and improve my fighting skills because I was still bitter then. I still wanted to revenge for my family. But I couldn't tell her that's what I wanted. So I just told her I want to go to school and be a better person. And so she had to smuggle me into Kenya. And the way we did it was I told her just dress nice and smell nice, you know, and I'm going to use my basic soldier skills to get into the plane. And so when the day came, that's what she did exactly. So everybody was smiling at her, and they were enjoying her perfume. During that time, then I made my way inside to the plane, and then she smuggled me into Kenya. But you know, because time is running, maybe I'll, I'm going to stop there so that I leave different part of the book, because my publisher is here. I don't want them <laughs> to feel that I've finished the whole story, and you guys won't buy the book. So, but what I'm going to do now is uh, I'm going to sing a song dedicated to Emma McCune. I told you guys early on where I've been eating one meal a day, only dinner, is I made a promise to the kids in my village. When I visited, they said they wanted a school. So everywhere we go, it's school. Even they're not asking for aid. And so the idea I want to pass to the world is for people who really want to help us, Tools for the farmers, schools for the children. That's the only way to to get rid of poverty, and that's that's one way to enlighten people's brains so that we will not have many wars and tribes will be able to reason at a at, at a way in which they can understand each other. So I told these kids, I'm going to look for the money. So when I came, I was shooting a documentary. So. One year has gone, and we didn't get the money to build a school. And so, and I decided, and I got inspired by some kids in New York. They had them trying to build a school. So these kids, what they did is they, they started missing on their snacks. So when their parents give them pocket money to go and buy sweets, so they gave each, each class gave each other a bottle, a big bottle to fill up with coins and dollars. So the way they did it, they were missing out on their snacks. And so they shot a music video. Uh, they shot a, a video and put it on YouTube for me to see. And when I look at it, I say, "Wow, I have to step up my game." And so I said, "Okay, fine." I thought I was famous enough, and I would finish this journey within one month. So I started eating one meal, uh, no breakfast, no lunch, and the meals that I'm missing, I'm donating it to the school. And then I go and talk around, tell people to miss their breakfast or buy themselves out. And then the challenge was called lose to win. So I, I lose my breakfast, my lunch, so I could win. And I'm doing that because we want to build a school in honor of Emma. Emma McKeown not only rescued me alone, she rescued over 150 child soldiers. And when she came to Sudan, she saw how the, the situation was, was very complex. And the way she saw it, like, the only way to help these people is educating the women and putting the children to school so that someday when they, in time to come, they'll be able to create the revolution. And so that's why I'm missing out on the meals. And I want to enjoy this moment, celebrating Emma. Do you guys want to celebrate Emma with me? Yeah. First of all, let me check with the sound if it's good enough for you to jump out of your seats, yeah? 
and then we're gonna celebrate Emma. This one goes to Emma McCune. This one goes to Emma McCune. Angel to the rescue one afternoon. I'm here because you rescued me. I'm proud and cut of your legacy. Thank you. Bless you. R.I.P. Mia. What would I be? Mia. Yeah, I think it's good enough. <laughs> so, do you guys wanna, do you guys wanna rock with me? All right, let's stand. Stand up. We're gonna celebrate Emma, yeah. See, with the hip-hop, it's easy. If you don't know how to do anything, just go like. <laughs> yeah? And if you want to play about it, just flick it, you know? <laughs> and uh, if you don't know anything completely, just jump like in the rock. Have you ever seen you just jump up like this? You wouldn't miss a reason. And so... Now we're gonna celebrate Emma McCune. This one goes to Emma McCune. And you're to the rescue one afternoon. I'm here because she rescued me. I'm proud of cut your legacy. Thank you. Bless you. R.I.P. Mia, what would I be? Mia, what would I be? Mia, yeah, yeah. Are you there with me at the back? You would have seen my face on the telly, fat, hungry belly, flies in my eyes, head too big for my size. Just another little serving child Running around in Africa born to be wild Praise God, praise the Almighty for Sending an angel to rescue me I got a reason for being on this earth Cause I know more than many what life is worth And now that I get a chance to stand my ground I'm gonna run over mountains, leaves and bounds I ain't an angel, hope I'll be one soon And if I am, I wanna be like Emma McCune Mia Mia what would I be? Mia. What would I be? Mia. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would have probably died from starvation or some other wretched disease. I would have grown up with no education, just another refugee. I stand here because somebody cared. I stand here because somebody did. I know there is a lot of them out there who's willing and trying to save a life of a child. Mia, what would I be? Mia. The time when I small, where I can't read or write at all. Now I'm all grown up, I got my education. The sky is the limit, and the camp is up by no one. For oh, I pray for this day to come, and I pray that the world find wisdom to give the poor in need some assistance instead of putting up resistance. Yeah, sitting and waiting for the politics to fix this, it ain't gonna happen. They're all sitting on the asses Popping champagne and sponging up the masses Coming from the refugee boy soldier But I still got my dignity I gotta say it again If ever never rescued me I'll be a call from the African plane 
Can you see at the back some love there? Are you with me? Yeah. I get crazy here. I'm gonna get crazy now. The wretched disease. Blessing, blessing. Thank you, thank you. We have a, a little bit of time left for some discussion. My chair's notes say that I'm supposed to kick off discussion with a few questions. That would be a bit greedy, I think, given that we have limited time left. I'm just going to ask one, though, just to get the discussion going while you're re-establishing the internet connection. In reading your book, I have read quite a lot of biographical books, and it seems very difficult usually for people to be honest about their own experiences. One thing that really struck me, even when dealing with very difficult issues, like the ones you've just been describing, you're very honest, and the book is very honest. There's no glorification of your role or of any of the people you met, even the ones you liked. Do you find it easy to be honest in that way? Well, what I'm telling is, uh, is I'm telling a story. It's like I'm writing down history of events. It's a normal way in African, uh, in Africa where we write down history. It is through form of music, poetry, or maybe drawing, you know, because they, they were never different for, with, in olden days, there were no books. People couldn't write stuff, so we tell the story in music. And so now that there are so many forms in which I can tell the story through a movie or, or a book or through music or even art form or cartoons or any format, because I want to use it to educate not only the Sudanese or the Africans, but the whole world. And so and I have to be careful the way I'm structuring it. So I'm just telling my story in the best capacity in things that I can't remember. Right. I'm going to open to the floor for brief questions, contributions, comments. Entirely up to you. We believe in freedom of expression <laughs> within time constraints. So, please, gentlemen at the back. Oh, please, could you wait for the microphone to arrive? Otherwise, we'll have to repeat. I was just wondering, um, you're celebrating Emma. Is she still around? Uh, Emma actually got killed in, uh, in Kenya. And so I never had a chance to say thank you to her. You know, we used to fight a lot of time when, when she brought me to taking me to school, and I was not uh, adjust to living with civilian during that time. So I was always causing her trouble. But now she's gone. Is her part is missing. So I say I want to say thank you to her. Not only in the form of the music now, but we're building a school in her name. Please. The microphone is just here. I am. Um, enjoyed your music very much. Thank you. Thank um, you. I would just like to ask you, after the horrible experience you've had in your life, how do you arrive at a state of forgiveness? Or have you? Wow. It was a forgiveness is 
is something that you have to work on constantly because a wound that is healed can be scratching, it can start bleeding. So you have to constantly keep positive and know why you have to forgive. I was able to let go and forgive because I went to Kenya. So me, I never thought, I thought we were the only people who have problems in the world. So I didn't know about the rest of the world. So when I came to Kenya, I was able to learn about Nelson Mandela, I was able to learn about Gandhi, I was able to learn about Martin Luther King. You know, I used to see most rappers on TV and I used to think they're Kenyans. And so I did not know like this other different part of the world. And also reading the Bible and also reading the Quran. So because I was educated at that moment, I was able to gather as much information as I could. And so I came to discover what was killing us. And what, I, what was killing us was, was oil. And the oil, the land, the gold, the diamond, that's what was killing us. But somebody is sitting somewhere to manipulate the faith. You know, so they manipulate religion so that they could remain on power. And you see, not everybody was able to read in South Sudan. So, you know, whoever come and speak something, if they come and tell you about a lie in a Quran, you cannot read Arabic. So, you get information as they tell you. Christianity was the same. And so, it's hard to forgive when you don't know the truth. And so, when I was able to discover the truth, so I had the choice. Should I continue hating or should I forgive? Because when I was in Kenya, even Muslims and Christians were living happily together. There was never a riot that they're fighting. And I couldn't understand that. And also, I was able to have some Muslim friends in school. They didn't know I hate them. There was one boy who was super nice to me, so I always act bad to him. And he was nice to me. So all those information that I gathered uh, helped me to forgive. But even though when I forgave, it wasn't that easy. So I had to put it in practice. So, and I did an album with a Muslim singer, and then I kept on working with Muslims, and I had many Muslim friends. So in my mind, when things happen, I always know, no, it's not, this is not him doing this. It's not Islam, because if they know what real Islam is, they would not do this. And so even there are Christians who think that we say they are Christians, but their lifestyle is not reflecting what their faith is telling them. So you know, as a Christian, if you're slapped on this side, you give the other side. And you know, nowadays you slap another Christian, he'll blow you <laughs> the, the other side. So the information helped me forgive. And you know, when you forgive, you actually become free. So when I forgive now more, I'm moving freely. I'm able, even my documentary was funded by Muslims, guys from Iran. So don't think I'm, a, I'm part of Taliban. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they funded because they saw it as a story that need to be told. And so you could see like what forgiveness could do. It can be a blessing. I'm afraid the clock says 25 past, which is when I'm instructed to, to wrap things up. So I'm getting nods from the staff approvingly. Uh, apologies for that. I believe the ethos of the book festival is it's better to leave you wanting more with a thirst for more knowledge than to, than to have you getting bored. Let me just quickly wind up then. Uh, as I said at the beginning, we have a, a commitment to freedom of expression. And throughout all the events that we're involved in at the book festival, we actually profile one individual, one prisoner of conscience who has been persecuted for speaking up peacefully and expressing their views. And this year we're highlighting a man called Binayak Sen in India. Now, where are you handed an amnesty program on the way in with a card in it? Okay. If you read that card, you'll find that Binayak Sen is a, a doctor. He's a, an award-winning pediatrician. He's been engaged in innovative work, bringing uh, health care and health education to rural communities in India. And at the same time has been a human rights campaigner. He's been quite vocal in criticizing the local authorities and uh, their actions towards the local population. And we believe it's these latter actions that have resulted in him being charged with 
what we certainly believe are, are trumped up charges. He's currently facing a lifetime in imprisonment for what we believe is purely freedom of expression and human rights campaigning. If you are inspired enough by what you've heard, uh, the idea of freedom of expression, then please do join us in taking this action on behalf of Benayak Sen. We're collecting thousands of these cards throughout the Edinburgh Festival. They will be delivered to the Indian Consulate uh, here in Edinburgh, so giving you a nice and simple and direct way to actually speak out on behalf of somebody who's being persecuted. You can either hand them to some Amnesty volunteers on the way out, if you've had time to sign them, or at the, uh, the suggestions box in the entrance tent to the book festival. Please do that. Please do take away your Amnesty program, which will give you a whole list of other events you can attend, uh, not least of which are the daily imprisoned writers' readings here at the book fest festival. That's half past five every day in the Peppers tent, a free event. I have two quick um, business agenda items. One is that Emmanuel Jal will be moving through into the signing tent uh, to sign copies of his book. If you haven't already bought it, I would recommend it. I finished reading it last night at about midnight. Uh, <laughs> it really is worth reading. It's an honest account of a remarkable life. Um, any questions you have, please bring them along then. Don't try and, and stop us to chat now, because we do need to get out so that the next event can get in. And finally, I've been asked to plug that the Spiegel tent here is now open. So if you do want to continue the evening, I have lots of things to talk about. The Spiegel tent is open on the other side of the, of the square here uh, for beer, snacks, drinks, and general conversation. So just um, the last thing as ever uh, is to thank our speaker today for coming along, for giving a truly, I think, inspiring and eye-opening account and I think just to, to recognize the fact that to come along and to speak in a personal way about such difficult uh, times in the past, to give so much of oneself for our benefit is a wonderful thing. We benefit greatly from hearing inspiring stories such as this. So please do join me in thanking Emmanuel Jarrett.